writing about science and writing about food can be very dry, right? And so trying to make it engaging and trying to be funny is part of, you know, what I work really hard at because I want people to, first of all, want to read an article or want to read a book. And then hopefully, you know, the information sticks better. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, Matt is talking to Kenji Lopez-Alt, the guy behind the best-selling cookbook, The Food Lab, and one of the most singular voices in food media today. Matt, what did you and Kenji talk about? Anna, this is the first time I got to speak with Kenji, and it was a real pleasure getting to know him. We went back to the early days of Serious Eats and remembered a very different time in the history of food media. It was kind of the era of the scrappy food blog startup. Yeah, we talk about the the time when I would I would go through the the, the this week in Serious Eats slideshows at the end that they published on Fridays. I loved reading those as an editor at another publication, and it just was clear how much fun they were having. Totally, I remember like hitting Serious Eats up in the RSS feeder. <laughs> I love RSS feeds. Shout out Google Reader. Um, we also talk about The Walk, which is his latest book. It's over 600 pages of recipes and techniques devoted to one of the greatest pieces of cooking equipment ever. It was so great getting to hang out with Kenji for a little bit. Here's Matt talking to Kenji. Kenji lopez all welcome to the Taste Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. I wanted to start because I began following Serious Eats through your Friday afternoon week of Serious Eats slideshows back okay. in, <laughs> my God, like 12 years ago. Uh, I don't know when and we started this, 2009 or 10? Yeah, something like that. Like you, Max, Aaron, Robin, others. Yeah, like the dogs. <laughs> the dogs yeah. named after food. I mean, before everyone named their dog after food, to be honest. Right. <laughs> Hambone. I just, it was like pure joy. Like I, I absolutely loved uh, dipping into your world and your universe and seeing how Serious Eats was made. I was an editor at the time as well and knew a few of you, not you. T- take us back to that time. Oh, man. I mean, the early days of Serious Eats. So, you know, I wasn't there at the very beginning. Ed Levine started it uh, a couple of years before I joined. Um, and uh, in the early days, it was, you know, this was like one of the early food blogs. So I think he started it when, 2006 or 2007. Um, I joined... Uh, I started as a freelancer in 2008, writing about burgers, and then uh, and then my food lab column I started. Uh, I can't remember late 2008, maybe mid 2009, and then I came on full time uh, later in 2009 to begin the recipe development side of the site because originally the site was just reviews of New York restaurants and sort of New York restaurant culture. And then uh, I was hired to do recipes because as it turns out, a lot of people, there are a lot more people in the world searching for recipes than for New York restaurant news. So that's why he brought me on. Um, But, you know, at the early days, we were, we were in a tiny office in a building um, on the campus of the, uh, the Fashion Institute of Technology on 27th street. There was uh, how many of us were in there? I think Maybe six or seven at most. Me, Carrie Jones, Aaron, uh, Aaron Zimmer, Robin Lee, um, Adam Kuban, uh, Ed, and uh, maybe that was it in the very early days. And then eventually we realized that oh, we have to we we can't just rely on uh, this web hosting service. We have to bring in developers and designers and all that stuff. And the company started growing. Um, but you know, it, it was a very uh, it, it was. 
it was a lot of hard work, um, not much money, and uh, and a very sort of fun atmosphere. I mean, we basically lived together and went out and ate together and um, and did all those kinds of things. You know, the, the kind of stuff that I feel as a you know an older person who's worked in the industry longer now. Um, it's a lot of the kind of stuff that I feel like wouldn't fly in a professional setting anymore, and and honestly shouldn't fly because uh, you know the expectations placed on everybody as, as to the amount of work we had to do was, um, you know, it was one, it was one of those situations where it's like, we basically set our own schedule. We didn't have specific vacation times or time off. It was like, you know, take, take whatever, take whatever time you need, but really that meant you don't take any time. <laughs> so we were all working days, nights, weekends, whatever, you know, I can't believe I forgot Carrie Jones, by the way, a shout out to Carrie Jones. And, and really I, we had Ed on the show when his memoir oh, and Maggie, came out. Ma- don't, and, Maggie Hoffman started right when I did. Oh, Maggie. Shoot. Yeah, of course. Maggie too. So, I mean, what was food media like d- during that time when Serious Eats was just getting off the ground? I mean, I got my thoughts, but I feel like you guys were kind of redefining what a, a food magazine or a food website was doing. Yeah, yeah well, it was, you know, it was, a, it was very experimental because it was the early days of blogs. And, you know, I think we're past blogs now. Now we're on to like, you know, video video stuff, which didn't really exist back then. But, um, you know, it was us and then like a couple of other sort of um, of those original food blogs, like, you know, like Orange Jet and maybe uh, Smitten Kitchen, um, you know, ones that were run by individuals as opposed to a sort of collective. Um, and so it was very, it was super experimental. It's like, sometimes we, uh, you know, we, we tried getting, um, you know, we tried getting recipes submitted by the community to see if that would work. We had, you know, we had a long time bulletin board where people just talked about stuff. And, you know, before this was like sort of before, you know, Reddit became super popular. And so we thought, oh, we need like a bulletin board where people can talk about food subjects. And now just people just go onto other sites that are dedicated to that. We tried writing local reviews. We tried doing travel pieces. We tried doing, um, you know, the, the stuff that ended up really sticking was the, you know, was the recipe stuff and, and writing a lot about not just about the finished recipe, but writing about the whole recipe development process. And, you know, that that's what I found kind of liberating was having come from the world of print media. Um, where your stories are very limited by the the voice, you know. You, you, I was at Cooks Illustrated, and it's like we had to write stories that were tailored to our subscription by our subscriber base. Um, so we knew what kind of stories they wanted because we did tons and tons of surveys. Um, so you're limited as far as the scope of what you can do, and then you're also limited by length because you know real page Cut to real fit, estate. baby. Yeah, Cut exactly. To fit. So you have a, a word count, and you have to meet it. No, no questions. Um, whereas on online. Um, especially in the early days, it's like you could experiment as much as, as much as you want. You can make a, you can write, you know, five thousand words about hard boiled eggs if you want, and nobody's going to stop you. And, um, and, <laughs> and and you did, and that's did, probably yeah. liberating. <laughs> you really found your voice there, and obviously the food lab took off based on your column at Serious Eats. Um, was there a moment you felt? things were clicking? Uh, was it right before the book published? Was it before that? I mean, when did you know Food Lab was a success? From the first Food Lab article, actually. Um, you know, I, I, I had been um, I had been writing some freelance pieces for Series He's doing like little burger reviews and stuff like that. And then I went out to lunch with Ed Levine. Um, it was with Ed Levine and Robin Lee before I was hired there full time. Um, and Ed was like, you know, you should come work for us, like write a column. And I was like, well, what kind of column? Um, and he's like, well, what are you interested in? And I was like, well, you know, like I'm, I'm interested in like food science and writing about recipe testing. And he's like, all right, like write a food science column. We'll call it, uh, I think originally he was like, we'll call it the, oh, I don't remember something, something, something laboratory or some, something. But then eventually he was like, yeah, let's no, you know what? Let's call it the food lab. 
Um, and I was like, okay. So I did the first Food Lab article, which was about boiled eggs. That first article, I think, was the, you know, I wasn't working full time at the time, so I didn't have access to the numbers. But Elena Brown, the general manager of a series seats um, at the time, said that it was like the most popular article they'd ever done. So I was like, oh, OK, well, this was fun for me to do. Um, and Ed was probably like, sign up three more, right? Oh, yeah. It was it was like every every week I had to write 5000 words on or whatever a number of words. Um, but it was fun for me. You know, it was like it was great because I I, uh, I think I got paid per article at the time. I think the first one I got paid 30 bucks and then uh, it went up to 45 after it was popular for a while, um, <laughs> which was, you know, the going rate for blog publications at the time. It was probably even higher than some people were paying. And it seemed from Ed's memoir, this is what they could pay. It wasn't like someone was getting rich off of this stuff. It was, you know, a real scrappy operation. Oh, yeah. Nobody was getting rich. <laughs> um, yeah, nobody was getting rich off of, off of serious Seats. I want to talk about your your YouTube because you have a, such a cool, unique style. Uh, the POV, you start um, and then you flip the cam, and I think everyone knows your style. How did you just kind of find this style um, with so much great cooking content available on streaming? Uh, accidentally. <laughs> it was an accident. You know, for years, um, even while I was at Series Seats, you know, we tried to do video content and figure out how to translate recipe content and, you know, specifically the type of recipe content I do into, into video, um, you know, and we, and we tried various ways. We had an in-house videographer, Jessica Leiberwitz, at the, um, for a while. Um, we uh, spent a bunch of money hiring a full production team and getting a, getting a site and lighting it and, you know, a full, a full production team with like, you know, craft services and everything um, to try and produce like a little mini series. And none of it really seemed to work. Uh, and then, you know, eventually this was after, um, I left Serious Seats full-time after my daughter was born, I left Serious Seats full-time. And, um, you know, there's one day, uh, when I had just come home from a trip, um, and on that trip I had, I had brought my GoPro. I think I, I don't remember where I was in Mexico. I think, um, I brought my GoPro, uh, and so it was sitting on my kitchen counter and I was about to cook something. I was like, oh, like maybe I'll try like sticking this on my head and cooking something and see how it looks. Um, and so I did that. And then I posted that video, maybe a couple other ones, um, and didn't really think much about it. Um, and then in like January of 2020, February of 2020, um, I looked back at my YouTube channel, which I wasn't really thinking about or maintaining, but I looked at my YouTube channel and was like, oh, this dumb video of me making a sandwich has like a million views. Um, I guess people kind of like that. And so uh, and so I was like, yeah, maybe I'll make a few more, try a little bit harder and see what happens. Um, and, and I did, and it turned out people liked it. You know, I think the reason why, you know, sticking the camera on my head and cooking, uh, works, there, there's a couple things. Like, first of all, like I'm much more comfortable doing that. Cause I, I'm, I'm really not good at sort of public speaking or, or doing things in front of a, a big audience. Um, as I kind of, you know, I kind of have to tune them out in order to be able to talk about what I'm doing. Uh, and so being on camera and having a camera pointed at me and like trying to memorize lines or scripts um, or talking points, um, I, I just come off sounding super unnatural. But cooking and focusing on the cooking while I'm talking about what I'm cooking, like that's something I had practiced a lot because when I go on like book tour or when I do events and stuff, um, what I basically do is like I tune out the audience. I just focus on what I'm doing and I talk about what I'm doing. Um, and so I can do that same thing when I have a camera strapped to my head. So all I have to do is cook and talk about it. And, you know, um, and it turns out 
you know, I think I, I come off sounding more natural that way because it is natural. And I like it's not styled either. I mean, you're pulling things out of your your freezer and you're like seeing little moments of your life in, in a, not a creepy way, but a real way. Because I think so much food, some of it's like Babish is highly stylized. It's great, you know, um, but it's it's styled. And, you know, I think when you see you cook through a risotto or, or something interesting, I feel like it's democratizing home cooking when you actually see you pulling out frozen vegetables to cook with. I, I just, I love it. I mean, it's all, it's all, you know, the, my rule, my only rules for the videos are that I don't cook anything just for the video. I mean, maybe with one or two exceptions early on, um, I don't cook anything just for the videos and it, everything I'm cooking is basically stuff I'm, I'm cooking to feed my family with. Um, so it really is just home cooking. Most of the time, I'm not following a recipe. Like, I might say, hey, this is based on this recipe I wrote for Serious Seats or the New York Times or whatever. Um, but I never follow the recipes exactly. Um, I generally improvise a bit with what I have. Um, and, you know, my other rule for the video is if I miss, if I make a mistake, it stays in. Like, I don't I don't pull out, like, the pretty food that I had cooking on the side. You know, because I've worked in TV. I've worked in TV and other, you know, video production for, for food stuff. Um, and... It's all, you know, it's it, a lot of it's real cooking, but the end result is always fake, right? It's something that is very styled and made to look perfect. Um, and so in that sense, I think people enjoy seeing, um, you know, a professional cooking um, off the cuff and including the mistakes and, and seeing that, okay, even people who cook for a living um, make mistakes. Uh, and, and so showing people that it's okay to make mistakes and also how to bounce back from them. And like, this is what, if this happens, here's how you can fix it. Um, or it doesn't matter, you know, it's just, it's just food, you know? So I think, I think people like having that reassurance that, that everyone, including professionals make mistakes. Make mistakes, cut their fingers, maybe burn something. Let's (laughs) talk about the walk. I just got my copy yesterday. It's, it's just impressive and congratulations on the release of it. Absolutely. And, you know, the legend, um, that's growing is that this was intended to be a chapter in the food lab back in the day. But your editor, Marina, Maria Gornicelli, decided or, or suggested that you make it a book. Is this is this accurate? I just want to fact check with you. Close. Not quite. So it was a, a chapter of the original Food Lab book, um, which also had a number of other chapters that got cut. Um, you know, the original Food Lab book, we actually – I finished writing it and we laid it out as a as actually as a two-volume uh, box set. Um, so the, the book that was published is about 900 pages um, the original book was 1,600 pages, two 800-page volumes. Um, and then at that point, my publisher kind of got cold feet because I was a first-time writer, you know? They didn't, you know, and and they weren't sure, like, is some, are people really going to pay, like, 75 bucks, whatever it would have to cost for a two-box set from a first-time writer? Um, and so Maria said, you know what, like, we, we have to do it in one volume. And I was like, that's fine. Um, and so we ended up cutting out, basically, like, we kept all the stuff that was the real Western, particularly, like, American type recipes. So mac and cheese and meatloaf and fried chicken and, um, and, you know, pasta, you know, American and sort of American adjacent things that are in this sort of normal American repertoire. That's what we kept in the first book. And, and on most of the other stuff ended up getting cut, um, with the idea that if the first book was successful, we would do a second book, um, that contained all that other material plus more. Um, and so, the first book was successful. And then, um, you know, a few years later, I started, I, I, my editor, um, Maria Gornicelli, uh, retired and she's actually um, since passed away. Um, but um, my editor, current editor, Melanie Tortoroli, she asked me when I could turn in the next book. Um, and I said, well, I'm going to write a children's book first. And I did that. And then, uh, and then I started working on the second volume of the Food Lab. Um, 
And it was just this kind of like mix of random things, you know, um, that didn't exactly, I couldn't figure out like how I was going to organize and make it all work together. It's like, how do I fit like tacos and scallion pancakes in the same book um, without, you know, it's just like, it, it just turned out to be like a bunch of stuff that I enjoyed eating, you know, but that didn't have any sort of thematic significance. Um, and so I was like, all right, you know what, I won't think about how I'm organizing it for now. I'll just start writing, working on the recipes, expanding it and writing. Um, and so, yeah, I started with the walk chapter. And after I got, you know, for which I had budgeted probably like 100 to 150 pages. What? Okay. Well, you and went then, over a little here. Yeah. And so I started writing and I was, you know, I got up to like 200 pages and it's like I wasn't even through. I, you know, I'd done some walk science and, and walk technique and stir fries and I wasn't even through stir fries yet. Um, so I told Melanie, like, you know, I have I have 200 pages already. Like, I'll probably have another 80 more just on the stir fry chapter. And then, like, that's not even talking about deep frying, pan frying, steaming, braising, um, you know, all these other things you can do in a walk. Um, why don't we just write, write one book on the walk? That way, like, it's all tied together. And 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 I think it's like a unique, there are a lot of great books on walk cooking and, you know, in particular sort of regional um, Asian cuisines. Um, but uh, I think the approach I'm taking is from a, specifically from a, you know, Asian American who grew up in the U.S., um, who has a, a strong interest in um, food all over East Asia, but also a very strong interest in Chinese American, Japanese American, all these Asian American food cuisines, um, and and sort of a very technique first oriented um, practical approach to cooking in a wok. Um, so I thought I thought it was a sort of unique take on um, on wok cooking that I hadn't seen before, and that you know I I, I hope will be useful to uh, it will be home you say Grace Young's books Breath of the mm-hmm. Wok and Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge those two books and you've articulated just now how your book is is slightly different from your from your point of view. Um, I, I feel like describing the breath of the walk, what that term means, because that's oftentimes written in any kind of article about walk cookery. So yes, I know this could be a very long multi-series podcast to answer this question, but describe the breath of the walk to to our listeners, what that means. Well, it, it really depends who you ask. And I and I interviewed a bunch of people, emailed a bunch of people about, um, you know, Chinese food experts, both in China and in the U.S. about what, you know, the breath of the walk is walk hey. Um, and the ra- answers range from like, well, it's like, wake is really like the feeling you get when you sit at like an outdoor restaurant in Beijing and there's, and you hear like this giant wok burner in the background and you see the steam floating through the air and you get this smell of like the smoke that's coming from the, um, from the bottom of the wok and the flame. And, um, and it's this feeling that it's this feeling that you can't capture at home because it it, it is part of like this restaurant experience, you know, this, this specific dining experience. Um, and then other people will say, you know, like my dad, uh, growing up, it was, for him, it was all, you know, we would, we would, um, you know, scour Chinatown in New York, Boston. Um, and, um, and particularly he, I mean, me and my family, like our favorite dish has always been dry fried beef chow fun, which is like, a um, you know, Cantonese and Hong Kong specialty that really relies on this wok hay flavor. And so my dad, I just remember from from the time I was a little kid, um, when we got really good chow fun, he'd be like, this is great chow fun. It has that nice smoky flavor. Um, and so for me, like wok hay is that smoky flavor um, that you get from a wok. Um, and, uh, you know, it comes down to part, part of it is the, the technical element, part of it is the flavor of um, the way carbon steel reacts with heat. And so the polymers that you develop as in a, in a well-seasoned um, carbon steel pan. So you can't get walk, proper wok flavor out of like 
a stainless steel pan or a nonstick pan. Carbon steel or cast iron um, are essential to that flavor. Part of it is the the vaporization of oil. So when you toss food um, in the air and when the fire actually like leaps into the wok, um, as you're tossing the food in the air, like the little droplets of oil fly up into the air, they vaporize, and then you throw your food through that fire and through that smoke and it picks up um, some of that burnt oil flavor it's similar to the flavor you get like when you're grilling a hamburger and like on a, a cast iron of, pan yeah uh no on a grill like oh, an outdoor grill, grill, grill with grill, a live grill. fire yeah and a little bit of the fat drips down and singes and you see like a little puff of flame and a little smoke envelop the burger that that flavor that you get from that that smoky flavor is part of it um and then another part of it is also just um when you add sauces to the wok, like for instance if you're adding soy sauce to a wok um when you when you do it the right way, which is to add it um, around the edge of the wok onto the hot metal instead of pouring it directly onto the food in the center, when you add it to the hot metal, like it, it very quickly sears. So it's this like seared sauce flavor, which sounds weird. It's like how do you sear a liquid? But by sp- spraying a liquid onto a very on a very very hot piece of metal, um, it develops these sort of caramelized, slightly smoky flavors. It's Maillard. Would you call it the Maillard? Uh, may- uh, it's not quite the Maillard reaction. I mean, I guess maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if if uh, Maillard would have considered like these burnt flavors to be part of his namesake reaction, but um, you know, it's it's really more like you're you're kind of burning it um, more so rather than so. It's not just a positive it. Maillard; it's more of a burn, but it is a positive. Yeah, mess. it's it's the yeah. kind of flavor that like if I you know in in a in a high end uh, like Western European restaurant, like if you're in a French kitchen and you're pan searing a steak and the flame jumps into the pan. Um, the chef would tell you to throw it out because it gets that like burnt oil flavor to it, which is not something you typically want in Western cuisine. But when you're talking about cooking in a wok, particularly these dishes that use like really high heat, which is not every wok dish, but some wok dishes that really want that smoky flavor, you have fried rice, fried noodles, um, you want the flame to actually be there. You're going to get this question obviously a lot, but I don't have a, not me, but hypothetically, I don't have a, a gas range. I have an electric range. Can I still get wok hay? Can I still actually use a wok on a on electric range? So absolutely, you can use a wok, um, and you can you know the 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 book, my book, uh, you know ninety five ninety nine percent of the recipes you'll be able to cook in electric or induction. Um, the exceptions are the ones where yeah, where wok hay really is an essential part of the flavor. So like there's like some stir fried greens recipes or or chow fun things like that where. You just using your electric burner alone, you won't be able to get wok hay because you do need that actual flame. Um, but there are techniques in there that show you how you can achieve those things at home. So what I recommend is, first of all, cooking in batches. Um, you can still get like the seared um, sauce flavors and that car- carbon steel flavor off of an electric um, or an induction range. Um, and then if you really want that smoky vaporized oil flavor, what I suggest is you cook in batches, spread your ingredients out into sheet trays, like aluminum sheet pans, um, as you cook them. And then uh, you get like a little butane torch, like a kitchen torch, and you just um, pass it over the food a few times uh, and that'll get you that wok flavor. Then you stir fry everything together at the end of the sauce and, and it tastes great. I love that tip, and I I think everyone should have a butane torch. We've written about that on taste quite a bit, and I I think everyone uh, can enjoy wake. So thank you for democratizing and making it for everyone. Your writing is funny. Like I think you you are considered a very serious uh, food uh, expert and, and and cookbook author, but. I love this line. Many things can be called fast, versatile, and fun. My old pocket Kodak Instamatic, Transformers, Bo Jackson. <laughs> but add delicious to the mix, and suddenly your list gets a lot shorter. I love that line, but explain about blending in delicious into this idea of fast and fun. 
Well, <laughs> it's a good line. I mean, I'm just giving you credit. It's a good line. I, I think I spent a while where, you know, as far as like making writing funny things like that, to me, that's actually the most difficult part of writing is making it engaging and, and coming up with, you know, I, I try and put jokes in there. My jokes are usually dumb dad jokes, but I try and put jokes in there. Um, and, uh, remember my old friend, um, Will Gordon, who, who is a columnist at Deadspin. Now. I think he's still at Deadspin, but he's, uh, he was like one of the funniest writers I, I know. And he always told me like making yourself sound fun, you know, like jokes are not, don't come naturally. Like you have to, if you want a joke to work, you know, maybe they come naturally like in a, in a conversation, but you know, any like stand up comedian will tell you, like, you have to work at your jokes to get them to work and you have to, and, and written humor is the same. I think you really have to work hard to make things funny. And I, I'm only mo you know, moderately successful at it, but um, that really stuck with me. Cause it's like, if you want your, if you do want your writing to be humorous and engaging, cause I, I think, you know, writing about science and writing about food can be very dry. Right. And so, trying to make it engaging and trying to be funny is part of, you know, what I work really hard at because I want people to, first of all, want to read an article or want to read a book. And then hopefully, you know, the information sticks better if they're enthusiastic about reading it. Like I know for me, like I'm much more likely to read something that I find enjoyable first and then the information will stick better. Um, so, you know, working on the jokes, you know, off, I, I, that's what I probably spend the most time on other than the recipe, <laughs> recipe in the actual writing process. It's like, all right, I'm going to write, like I can write the process of how I tested this recipe. I can write about the science. I can do that. The two things that I work hardest at are coming up with like good analogies for scientific principles that people will understand and grasp easily. Um, and then trying to make the writing lighter and funnier and less sort of technical. Yeah. It's such a challenge because I feel like the textbook approach to, to cookbooks is uh, is certainly for some, but not for all, and you want to be for all. So who who do you read? Who do you read right now? Who do you like in, in food writing? Like who who inspires you? Um I you know these days I actually watch a lot more video than I than I than I do reading. You know, I'll, I'll read books for reference, but it's a lot of times it's like um, you know, well-established older authors that I that I've just followed throughout their careers. So, you know, um, people like Grace Young, Fuchsia, Fuchsia Dunlop, um, people like Rick Bayless for Mexican food, Jacques Pepin. Like I, you know, I, I always pick up their new books. Um, I love, um, let's see, who do I love as a food writer? Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, who was a British food writer, um, who has a bunch of, you know, all of his River Cottage series. I, I really enjoy him because he's, he is very untechnically or oriented his books. Um, they're very sort of, you know, throw stuff together. Um, and he, but he's an extremely humorous writer. And I think, you know, so I really enjoy um, reading his stuff. Uh, very proper, very Cotswolds, very like, like he's got like a very British point of view, right? Yeah, he does. But, but I think it's all, you know, but, but like a lot of British humor, it's sort of tongue in cheek. Like he, sure. he knows like he's, he's this British dude and, yep. and makes fun of himself for it, you know, um, which I find great. You know, I, as far as like, you know, actual writing, when, I, when I'm writing a book, um, when I'm, when I'm working on a book and whenever I feel like I'm in a rut writing, I generally go back and re reread uh, anything by Douglas Adams, uh, any, anything, um, by Shel Silverstein, uh, anything by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Like, you know, th those types of that, that kind of humor I find, uh, most, you know, reflects what I want to, what I want to try and capture in, in my writing. So if I find like, oh, I'm not, I'm just not, I'm not funny or engaging today. Like I, like I never have trouble writing about the facts, but it's being engaging. Like I'll just like I'll take a long bath read a, read a Vonnegut novel. And I'm like, all right, there we go. That's a little fun. Yeah. That's what funny is. 
Uh, great calls on those. Um, I want to talk a little bit this like speed round style because I think our listeners really want to hear about like tools in your in your kitchen. But I, I would like to know your favorite kitchen tool right now. Mortar and pestle. I mean, unless we're counting pots and pans, you know, then wok, right? But uh, mortar and pestle um, is, I think, the one of the most. I mean, it's one of the most ancient kitchen tools, but I think it's one of the most that's most underused and overlooked in modern modern cooking um, because we have all these specialized gadgets and stuff that supposedly take the place of a mortar and pestle, you know, like a blender or a food processor or a spice grinder. Um, but when you actually go and first of all, like flavor wise, when you test things side by side, like a mortar and pestle will get more flavor out of your ingredients than a food processor, mainly because you're, you're crushing cells as opposed to sort of shearing them. Um, so you get better flavor. Um, you get better texture over a lot of things. So like you can emulsify things really easily in a mortar and pestle, like pound some garlic cloves in there, like make a mayonnaise in a mortar and pestle. You pound some garlic cloves, you get really good garlic flavor. You can add your egg and then drizzle in your oil and like the mortar and pestle will emulsify it for you with very little work. But you know, and, and then and then on top of that, it's like people think, oh, like, well, mortar and pestle is just too much work to use. Um, and you know, it is like a little bit of physical labor, but I find that once you're through with like pulling out the piece of electric, you know, mechanical equipment, the plug-in equipment and then cleaning it and all that stuff. Like if I just want to grind a teaspoon of, um, of Sichuan peppercorn, for example, first of all, like you can't really grind a teaspoon of spices in a spice grinder. It just kind of flies around the blade. Um, I can, I can pull out my mortar pestle, stick it in there, grind it up and it's done in like 15 seconds. And then I just rinse it out to wash it. Um, so when you, when you take into account everything, I find that not only do you get better flavor out of a mortar and pestle, but in most real everyday cooking situations, with rare exception, um, you know, when you're dealing with big volume, in most real re regular everyday cooking situations, it's actually faster and more convenient. Yeah. Also. I mean, it's all about cleanup because you're not uh, having to unplug anything. You're not having to put any kind of the bins into the dishwasher or at least hand wash the blades. I agree. Fully. Yeah. Hand washing the blade. You don't have like all the cracks and crevices. It's just like a stone bowl and a stone mallet in your hand. And that's I it. love it. Uh, what's your favorite condiment right now? Just got to ask. My favorite condiment, <laughs> my favorite condiment right now is um, Kari Kari um, uh, Chili Crisp. Kari Kari is a local Seattle brand. Um, they make like the best chili crisp I've had. I mean, I mean, it tastes like homemade. You can make it yourself and it'll, and it tastes great, but it's a huge effort to make it really great. There's a, there's a really good recipe from Sola um, L. Wiley on um, Serious Eats uh, for making it yourself, but it's a process. Um, and Kari Kari is this local Seattle brand that, um, uh, I was just introduced to like two weeks ago and it, and it is, uh, like miles beyond anything else I've ever tried. Um, so that would be my favorite condiment right now. Good shout to a local business in Seattle. I love that. Okay. So we're talking about foods or ideas. So let's stop talking about dot, dot, dot. Let's stop talking about, I don't know. This is hard. I feel like I, I don't know. I don't want to shut down any conversation. I know. I know. It's unfair because I don't want you to come across as negative because uh, you're not. I I, I just uh, – how are we going to frame this? It's for the sake of the of the interview, I guess we could say. Is there, is there a topic that you're maybe burned out on? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like in my when – I, when I used to write online a lot, um, just because of the nature of, you know, clicking and titles and things that get people's attention, you know, people write online often like use – superlatives, like the best, whatever, the, the greatest, whatever, the top 10, whatever. And I always felt bad about doing that because it, I never really meant like, this is like the best burger or whatever, the best way to cook steak. What I really meant was like, here's a really good way to cook steak that you might not have 
tried before or that you might you know you might want to try once in a while but doesn't mean that you have to stop cooking steak other way other ways um so what i would say is like <laughs> stop uh stop telling people that they're right or wrong to cook things certain ways um you know there's no right or wrong it's just sometimes you know it depends what you want first of all and it's also like your mood can change from day to day so it's like someday i might want a tall fluffy pancake and another another day i might want that's a little you know crisper and more dense you know you know, it's and it's fine. You don't have to like the same thing or the same thing that everyone agrees is the best every time. So agree. Okay, let's start talking about dot dot dot. Let's you know, let's start talking about uh, this would be addressed to, I think, you know, professional chefs and and, you know, professional recipe testers and content producers. Like, let's start start talking about our mistakes um, and let's be OK with not being perfect. And let's you know, let's be OK with making mistakes for ourselves and, uh, you know, learning from those mistakes and admitting them so that everyone knows that um, people do make mistakes. Uh, Love that. Yeah, let's I start think talking about our mistakes. I agree. Like, and you never serve your mistakes too, right? That's the other thing. Never serve your mistake. Never serve your mistakes. Uh, it, well, it depends. You know, if I'm at home, yeah, serve it. It's fine. You know, it's like, uh, I'm not going to throw out food. If I'm at a restaurant, you know, then you don't serve it to the customer. Maybe you save it for a staff meal or something. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot. It's it's difficult to 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 mess food up so badly that it's like literally inedible. Right. Um, and so I think you should be fine. You know, if it's your family or your friends saying like, oh, this is a thing I was trying. Didn't come out exactly as I wanted to. But, you know, I, you know, it, you know what? You know, like Julia Child's old thing, just like give it a fake French name. If you mess it up, give it a fake, fake French name and serve it and say it's like a specialty of somewhere. And, and uh, nobody will know the difference. Right. And then try it again the next time. The certitude of, of recipe development is it can be a little frustrating that there's the only way to blank, the only, you know, I feel like the ish idea, like all these ishes that ended up in titles of publications and and uh, cookbooks kind of maybe got away from the certitude, like things can be flexible, right? I just like, I, like, I want to like follow up on that a little bit because I feel like we as cookbook authors and, and recipe developers sometimes are thought of as being like the only answer, but sometimes it's, there is no answer, right? With a recipe. You know, I mean, a lot of those recipe, you know, those, those titles, the something ish titles, um, I'm thinking particularly of um, Priya Krishna's book, Indian ish right now. Um, but I think a lot of those ish titles are not necessarily in reference to what's right or what's wrong, but more in, in reference to um, the concept of authenticity um, and what is like, a you know, what is real Indian food? What is real, spaghetti carbonara or whatever, you know? Um, and, and I think people get caught up in the, in those ideas of like what makes something real versus not too much, you know? And I think you can also go the other way. There are people who say like, oh, it doesn't matter as long as it tastes good. Well, I think there's a way to acknowledge, you know, the history of a recipe and what it means to a certain group of people who live in a certain area um, from a, you know, from a social or historical or cultural context while also acknowledging that's just not how I like it. I'm going to do it this way, you know, and I think that's totally fine um, to, um, to, to, to be cognizant of both of those things at the same time, which I think a lot is what a lot of these sort of ish titles are getting at. Like these are not Indian recipes. These are recipe, like my family is Indian, but I grew up in the U S and these are recipes that are based on Indian food, but are also um, reflective of my, um, of my upgrade upbringing in my current life. Um, and so they are not Indian, but they're Indian ish. Good, good and course I think- correction on the question. I, I, I agree fully. I think that it is about the multicultural dynamic of, of cookbooks. And sometimes, um, there's, there isn't certitude with what, like the, the actual home base is for some of these books. And like, I just thought that sometimes you just feel like there's the, o- this is the only way 
to cook something. I guess that's what I was trying to drive at. There's like, and it, that's anxiety inducing for the home cook, right? To think that there's only one way to do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I think is anxiety inducing is the, um, yeah, well, the, the idea that there's the only way and that, um, you know, and then you watch these recipe videos that are edited to be three minutes long or one minute long, right? And it's, and, and, and they do all these steps, they don't show what goes on in between, and then they pull out this food that looks perfect. And it's like, oh, it's it's that easy? And then you go and try it yourself, and it's like, wait, but why didn't mine come out looking like that? Um, and the answer is like, probably because the person who made that, first of all, like, they could have a team of people helping them make it that way. They they maybe made it, you know, had three, three of them at the same time and took out the best looking one. Um, they probably also made the dish many times over and over. Like they're, you know, they might be professional made it many times over and over to get it to look that way. Um, so it's very rare that like you're going to see a dish that you saw in a book or a TV show or whatever and, you know, knock it out of the park the very first time. Um, you know, cooking like anything is, is a skill that um, takes practice and work. Well said there. Let's highlight that one. Let's remember that one and put it away. I got a couple more. What's uh, what's the Food Lab follow up? What's the update? How's that coming along? I know you're working on that guy. The uh, the the second volume. Um, I'm not really sure. You know, now that I wrote the walk, um, I'm 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 you know I plan on taking a little break from writing food books or from writing sort of big serious food books for a while. Um, uh, I'm you know I'm, my next projects. I I want to write a couple more children's books. I was thinking of writing a book about um, soup. Just, well, I mean, yeah, I'm into soup. it. I, my pause was not a comment on the idea because my wife, Tamar, that is her favorite thing to make, like year-round. Soup. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. My, my, my wife is Colombian, and they eat a lot of soup in Colombia, so we, we eat a lot of soup at home. Um, and uh, and what else did I want to work on? I mean, you know, eventually there, maybe on the 10-year anniversary in four years from now, um, we'll do a... Um, you know, an updated edition of the food lab, because a lot of the recipes in there, you know, I've worked more on and a lot of the stuff in there is a little bit outdated at this point. Um, and so we might do an updated version or maybe an updated and expanded version um, that includes some of the other material that we ended up cutting. But um, at this point, there's not really like a food lab two that's specifically in the works. That's more sort of a long-term goal, maybe. We asked all of our guests in the Taste podcast, if there was one book that you could write without any deadlines or any budget constraints or like really the dream project in your lifetime. We've talked about soup. We've talked about the children's books. But is there another book? <laughs> I kind of get, to, you know, my first book was successful um, and it, and that sort of was my dream book at the time. And, and these days I do kind of get to write what I want, which is nice. You know, I feel like uh, I do have a pretty good um, situation and relationship with my publisher right now. And, you know, so I really wanted to write a children's book and I told them, Hey, I really want to write a children's book. And they said, okay. <laughs> and then, um, so I, I, you know, I kind of am, I feel like I am living the dream right now. Um, I, you know, I, I get to work on what I want to work on. Um, I do it at my own schedule. I get to spend time with my family and my kids. Um, uh, you know, long-term goal. I would, one book I would like to write is, um, a book on, regional Colombian cuisine aimed at uh, an American audience. I don't think it's necessarily a book that would sell very well. Mm. Maybe it would. I don't You'd know. You'd be surprised. Um, yeah, maybe. There's an audience, um, But Colombia, you know, my wife is Colombian. We spend a lot of time uh, traveling around Colombia. And, the, um, you know, Colombia is such a hugely diverse country in terms of climate and cuisine um, that uh, I don't think people – 
you know, people who haven't visited or people, you know, a lot of people think of Colombia and they think, all right, well, they think drugs and stuff like that, which is, which is unfortunate, but you know, they might, if they visited, they've probably been to like Cartagena or maybe to Bogota, um, maybe to like Medellin and not much else around the country. Um, and it's such a huge and diverse country, um, uh, both in terms of like climate and cuisine, uh, and, and culture, um, that I think, uh, it deserves to be sort of recognized in that sense. Um, so that would be a fun project to do. It all it would also let me travel more around Colombia, which I've wanted to do more of. So. Kenji Lopez-Alt, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.